right, everybody. So back on the podcast, we have Brandon DeCruz. How are we doing, man? Man, it is, it is great to be here with you, Dave. Uh, I know we were just catching up off air, and it's been quite a long time, man. It's been since 2021 that you, myself, and Abel did a podcast together. But obviously, you and I have, you know, you just went back even to the DMs, and we've been, you know, going back and forth for almost four years now. And it's crazy to, uh, like, see how much has changed in that time. But it's always a pleasure to be on with you, my man. Thanks. Yeah, man. It's it's interesting with the podcast because something I've said many times uh, to other people in my life is that I think when you're in a given place or given position, time just flies by. And what I mean by that is like when you're younger, right? I think one of the reasons that as we get older, it kind of seems like time is flying is because you kind of do the same thing. Like so when you're young, right? You're middle school, high school, college, you have so many different phases in life. And in a five year period, I mean, it's kind of amazing how much you do, right? Whereas you think of somebody from like 40 to 45, oftentimes it's like same house, same family, same job, all these things is kind of the same, right? And so the less, the fewer changes there are, I think the easier it is for time to just kind of fly. And so when I think of this podcast, you know, it's more or less been like the same thing. And I've talked to a lot of you guys. So as it goes on now, coming up on, I think five years, I started in 2018 fall. So coming up on five years, more and more people will probably hear me say, I can't believe it's been this long since I've talked to X person or whatever. Um, it, it really is just flying. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. I feel like the last few years, especially because when we first connected, it was still like the pandemic and stuff. And so, so many things happened within that time scale. And now we're, we're far removed essentially for many of us from that, that incidence and obviously being able to have like freedom and things of that sort. And so, so many things have changed within that year. But one thing I, I have noticed that has changed is that your viewership has went up astronomically in terms of like how many subscribers. Cause when we first connected, you had maybe a, maybe a couple thousand subscribers at most. So uh, I want to yeah. congratulate you on that. You've been putting out great podcasts. So, you know, I'm always, honored and uh always looking forward to catching up with you and there's you know talking about different topics you're someone that you have very nuanced conversations you're very inquisitive in terms of your question asking and stuff so i always look forward to that because it's i'm driven or i'm you know really attracted to like-minded individuals and that's why if we really look at it a lot of the people that we've done podcasts with whether they've been guests on your show you've been guests on their show or i've been guests on their show it's very similar people so we're talking to brian borstein we're talking to aaron striker we're talking to abel and guys like that that really have a very similar like-minded ideology where they want to put out good information they want to really dive deep into topics and they also have a ton of experience like most of us if we look at like the average maybe abel might be the person that has trained the least but i know you and i are i'm on 17 years training at this point. And I'm sure you're yeah. right there with you. And then, you know, even Brian Borsing, he's in 20 years plus training. So yeah. it's just a lot of experience, a lot of, you know, really, you know, learning things through trial and error, working with a ton of clients over the years and just really being able to, what I say, my, my goal is with everything that I do is to bridge the gap between that research and information. So we, we are evidence-based in many of our uh, interactions as well as how we approach things. But then it's also about where the rubber meets the road and really getting to the practical application side of things. Yeah, no, a, a few comments on that. I mean, for one, I think now you enables probably, I would guess, 11 or 12 years into it, I'd have to ask him. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I started at 14. So I'm like 18 years into it now. Um, yeah, it, it is. It is interesting, especially because none of us are that old. I mean, Brian's the mm -hmm. oldest. So he's now a 41, I believe. Um, but even he, he's turning back the hands of time. He looks phenomenal, man. Yeah, no, he, he doesn't look his age. And like, you know, there's I don't think there's that many people like us who are 31, let's say 32, who have been training almost two decades. And so it's interesting to have that perspective of like how it changes. Because, you know, one, one thing I do talk about is people talk about, okay, well, you don't gain that much after your first five years of lifting or seven years of lifting or whatever it is. And I, I think there's a lot of people who are kind of proven that that's not necessarily the case. Obviously, it's going to slow down, but plenty of people are still making gains, you know, after 10 years or so. However, I think even more so, for guys like us, like when you start at 14, that's just not going to apply, right? Obviously, you're not going to just start slowing down at 19. So the the amount of time we have to gain would have been extended there just because of puberty and hormonal development and things like that. No, 100%. And also just to, to branch off of that, I think another reason as to why maybe people are able to say, yes, you make the vast majority of your gains within the first five years is because there's so much information out. Think about like, Dave, when you and I first got into this, it was on board. That was the only information we were getting, if that, or some you know, bro in the gym that was big. And we asked the person with the biggest arms how to grow arms, which is probably the worst person to ask because they're most likely the person that was genetically gifted, chemically enhanced or whatever it may be. And they were the least likely to really know, or, you know, let me not categorize it as least likely, but they were more likely to be great in terms of their physique in spite of what they've done, not be directly because of what they've done, or they were genetically predisposed towards having great arm development. So just like, 
at this point in my life, I would never go to Phil Heath and ask him how to build a great set of eyes and tries. I would go to the person that had piss poor arms like I did and, and really try to develop them over the years. And what's really interesting about that is that I had a, I did a conference a couple months ago down in Tampa and I invited Alan Aragon to come out. And uh, so him and I actually, we both presented it. Then him and I hosted a Q and A together. And within that, like Alan was only one of the only people that I got really good information from. And I yeah, interacted with on the boards. Another one, got to give a shout out to him. And I always do when I'm on this podcast is Dr. Scott Stevenson. He was there presenting as well. So it was an honor to, to go from be on the boards, asking these guys questions, <clears throat> doing consultation calls with them. And then, you know, almost two decades later, essentially being able to present alongside them as, you know, colleagues. That's awesome. Man. And yeah, no, it was incredible. But within that, Really, if we go back to it, we had to disseminate a lot of the good information from the bad information. And that's still prevalent to today. So I'm not going to say that that the kids, the younger guys in this generation that are just starting training don't have that same task. However, there's so much more information now that you could go to an Eric Helms. You could go to someone like myself or yourself and really get great information about training, nutrition, lifestyle, sleep, stress optimization, all of these things. Whereas when we were first starting, it was literally just calories, do a dirty bulk, you know, go into the gym, slam yourself with volume, you know, bro split type of, you know, high volume, 20 sets per, per muscle group, you know, one day per week. And there was little right. nuance to it. You know what I mean? So it was like, yeah. we made so many mistakes that I think that actually kind of like, I guess elongated our trajectory for progress. Cause I'll tell you, I didn't see like the vast, I, I saw great gains even in my early twenties and I was already 10 years into training, but that's also because I did a lot of stupid shit early on. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the second point is for sure accurate, right? So we have that hormonal and people like, even if you did everything perfectly at 14, you're still going to keep growing until like, mm -hmm. let's say 25, 26, whatever, because you know, again, all those developmental changes, but to your point, the information is better. And and I think we kind of came up in an era where that was just starting because I, I people have heard me mention the T nation forums many times. And there was a guy, professor X, and he would almost complain that like, Oh, why are you people not going up to the big guy in your gym? Cause he was the big guy in his gym. And he probably went up to the big guy in his gym and he obviously had very good genetics and, you know, was a very big guy, but um, he would kind of make it as if it was a negative that we didn't go up to the big guy in the gym. And I would just think to myself, why would I go up to this random guy at the gym who, yeah, like you said, could have good genetics, could have, you know, whatever, maybe he's on some super sauce or something. But even that aside, we have access to literally like the best minds on the planet. And I mean, because of the podcast, I've actually talked directly with those people. But even if you, if you don't have a podcast, there's so many podcasts to listen to these days. It, it kind of just doesn't make sense. And there's other areas like this where, you know, I'll have somebody send me an article or they'll say, well, you know, you should really talk to this person. It's like, I'm not, it's not that I'm not open to having conversations with some other people, of course, but you really do have access to the best minds and like accessible these days. And um, that's that overall, I think it's a great thing. No, hundred percent. And also we have people that kind of bridge the gap between things. So we have the researchers that are in the ivory tower, but they're still like connected. Like, look at when we first started, Brad Schoenfeld didn't exist. Like he mm -hmm. was training people at a person as a personal trainer in New York, but I had no idea who he was. Cause this is the early two thousands. So we're talking 2006 to 2010. His um, thesis statement, I believe it was his master's thesis on the mechanism of muscle hypertrophy. Those three mechanisms, metabolic stress, mechanical tension, and muscle damage didn't come out until like 2011 or 2012. And at that point, I'm just becoming scientifically literate to be able to read these papers. But really, mm -hmm. because people like Alan, people like um, Scott Stevenson were disseminating and really breaking that research down. However, now we have people that really do bridge the gap where they do research reviews and they're kind of like, they have their one foot in the research and then one foot in the trenches. So we have reliable individuals that we can go to and learn from. And that's a really big advantage for younger guys. And I see even with clients that I work with who are say a decade younger than you and I, their ability to make progress is a little bit slower because they've made so much progress off the front end. So saying mm -hmm. like from the ages of 17 to 21, they yep. made a ton of progress because they got into good information. Now they come to someone like myself that they want to be able to get from the level of intermediate to advance. And I feel like with a lot of what we did, it was through trial and error. And I also think there's good utility to that because I made a lot of mistakes, especially from a nutrition perspective. And I know that on previous podcasts over the years, we've talked about the mistakes that both of us have made in terms of cycle dieting, you know, you know, under eating all week to overconsume like a, a full on cheat meal, like a binge yeah. day that was yeah. promoted by, by those that were quote unquote evidence-based at that time. And they weren't, yeah. and we didn't have the ability to really disseminate whether they were or distinguish whether they were or not. And now we have so many reliable resources. Think about all the, you know, I, I want to give a caveat or, or give a compliment as to the fact that you've had some of the best researchers, both that we know, and then we don't know. So for instance, you've had Brad on, 
you know, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, incredible researcher, probably has moved this field further in the last 10 years from a hypertrophy training perspective than anyone else. You've had Eric Helms. You've also had guys like Cody Hahn, which a lot of people don't know. But if we go into like the, uh, the molecular mechanisms of hypertrophy and signaling and all that kind of stuff, he's a genius. And so these are things that you're bringing on people from all ends of the spectrum. Someone like myself that I'm into the research, but I'm a practitioner. First and foremost, I care about making or getting results for clients in the real world. And I take some of the research and then I, you know, we have to realize that research is only a compass. It's a map. It, it points us in the right direction, but it's never going to tell us like today's Saturday. It's never going to tell me how to you know, train a client on a Sunday. You know what I mean? So really when it comes down to it, we are in such a great age and, and uh, a great era, I guess. And also we're both, we're, we're in a good position where we're still young enough to continue making progress and to be interested in it, but also not so young that we didn't learn from trial and error. Cause I do think there's, there's good utility from that because we make mistakes so that others don't have to. So let me back up a little bit there. So you, you talk about, obviously you're into the research, but you're, you're a practitioner, right? So for people who don't know, I mean, again, this is your, I think we said fourth time on the podcast. Uh, but we also mentioned there's definitely a lot of new followers and, and listeners. So so maybe we can talk about what you do, right? You, you yeah. mentioned you've been with me for so long. You train people, obviously. Um, you're a world-renowned fitness model, right? So, <laughs> so why don't you go into some of your background there? Yeah. So just to give a little, I guess, introduction, because it has been honestly a few years since we've probably done this. So you're, you probably have a, a completely new audience, but essentially what my day-to-day -day position is, is I'm a nutrition coach and I literally work with every type of client you can imagine. And I've done so actually going on 11 years at this point. So it's been a long time that I've been doing online coaching. I've been able to work with everyone from Olympia level IFBB pros. So guys like from the physique level of the Olympia stage and other professional athletes to lifestyle clients, like busy moms, you know, busy working professionals or like what I refer to as like Lifestyle Lisa and Gen Pop Jim. And also in addition to that, I've written uh, for and been published by many publications. So we're looking at guys like, or publications like Men's Fitness Magazine. I've been in, you know, I've, I've researched or, or done, you know, reviews for Alan Aragon Research Review. I've contributed to muscular development and bodybuilding.com. And really I've spent the close to the last 15 years working in different facets of the fitness industry. So initially I started out in the sports nutrition industry. I worked in distribution. Uh, I actually helped with product formulation. I worked for evidence-based nutrition companies or supplement companies such as NutriBio Labs. And I did that up until last year. And so during this entire time for nine years, I balanced both a full-time corporate career in the sports nutrition industry with my online coaching. And so that kind of capped me in terms of what I could do coaching wise. But within the last year, it's actually an, my anniversary for a year going out on my own was actually last week. So it's, it's been a year that I've been fully online or fully just into coaching. And I left, I resigned from my corporate position within sports nutrition because I got to like this fork in the road, to be honest with you, Dave. I know that you and I have often spoken about this uh, off air in terms of we like the stability or the security of having you know, a full-time position, a corporate position, um, having a career that's a little bit outside of the spectrum of just fitness or just you know uh, nutrition, things of that sort. And although I worked in the sports nutrition industry, I was an executive and I did... It was all the back end corporate type of thing. So it wasn't like when people think like, oh, you work for a supplement company, you must be just like doing, you know, product videos and things like that. Not really. Like I'm doing sales, I'm doing statistics, I'm going over research for formulating products, things of that sort. It's more of the back end stuff. Mm -hmm. And so although it was fitness related, it wasn't really driving my passion forward anymore. So I love the industry as a whole, but I got to this fork in the road where I knew that I had to make a decision between either going full-time on online coaching, or I had to stay in the supplement industry because I, I was working about 80 hours a week. I just didn't have, my quality of life was diminished, was, yeah. you know, radically. And I really had to decide, am I going to follow my passion and go all in? On this coaching business and really see if I can max this out or am I going to keep my foot in the sports nutrition industry only work with, you know, I was capped at between 20 and 25 clients for most of the year mm -hmm. uh, or most of the time period. You know, sometimes I would go up to 30 or 40 clients, but I would go overwhelmed to be honest with you, especially when I was traveling. And it was only the last few years during the COVID pandemic that I actually went up to a higher level of clientele in terms of number because I didn't have to travel anymore. But before mm -hmm. that, for the sports nutrition industry, I had accounts all over the country. My number one account at one point was bodybuilding.com. So I would fly to Idaho every single month wow. to go to corporate headquarters, do presentations. So at that point, I was capped like from say 2015 to 2018, 2019, I was capped at around 20 to 25 clients on my roster. And then from when, you know, 
2020 hit up until the time that I left my corporate position last year, I would do like 30 to 40 at a max. And so now I've went full-time online coaching. I'm still not, I'm not one to go big into numbers in terms of like, I'm, I'm looking for the quality of my services. I'm always trying to maintain, maintain that first and foremost. So I still cap my roster between 45 and 50 clients. However, I'm able to devote all my time to this in terms of researching stuff, in terms of really connecting with clients, doing more consultation calls. Uh, that's a big aspect of my business. So I don't only coach clients, but I also educate and mentor other coaches. So that's a, another aspect that I do a private one-on-one -on -one mentorship with other coaches or fitness professionals in the space. So overall, like if you really look at it going back, like fitness has been in my entire life. It, it honestly saved my life. I know we spoke about this a long time ago, but I actually grew up, I had an eating disorder and I was involved in weight controlled sports. So I, I ran cross country and track. And then I also did martial arts and I was competitive. And in martial arts, I had a weight class. And so I had to constantly over restrict myself over exercise. I did Taekwondo and Wataru. Okay. So Japanese style and then, you know, just regular karate. And so within that, um, I had weight control aspect of, you know, essentially my life. And I got into calorie tracking at 10 years old, dude. I was like looking like, you know, uh, my macros plus and like things like that or Fit Day PC I was using. I know you know that. Did you hear my Fit Day story? I did not. Uh, I was like a that. side tangent here. Um, this is like legitimately heartbreaking for me because I have had you know, 15 plus years of data on this thing. And anybody who's heard the podcast even a few times knows I'm, I'm very analytical. I have records on mm -hmm. everything. So basically, almost probably 98% of days over the last 15 plus years, you could go back and see my calories and all the different things I've tried. You know, it's like, I've had like 50 different whey proteins or whatever, you know, just something that's like interesting to see. And I, I would go to log in one day and I just can't log in. And I email like tech support and because I, I was still using Fit Day up until like six months ago or whatever this happened. Oh, Lord. Yeah, because I just had everything You're on the only there, person, you know? only I was the, the one guy, yeah. And so, and it, it was free. So, um, so then I emailed tech support and they said that they got rid of the services. And I was like, you didn't send like anything, like something so I could like export a file or something. And they were just extremely unhelpful and did not send me anything. So all they couldn't of the backlog it for you. They allegedly could not and or just chose not to. So so all oh my of God. my data from, again, over 15 years just erased. So that I, I'm still getting over it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, very upsetting. Man, well, first and foremost, I'm sorry to hear that because I understand you and I are extremely type A. We're very detail oriented and we're very into tracking a lot of a lot of data. And I know that that would be heartbreaking for me, first and foremost. Second of all, I have a really similar story. So I used to log all of my uh, training into logbooks. I would buy them on bodybuilding.com or, you know, it was like those standard, like you'd get a GNC, like these logs. Yeah. And what ended up happening was I kept them every single place that I've moved to. And mind you, I've moved because I traveled so much. I've lived in upstate Jersey, New York. Uh, you know, South Jersey, all over the place. So I've probably moved like five or six times within the last five years. Well, during one of the last moves I had, I had them in a box and I swear that I packed this. And I know because I went back to the apartment that I was living at and something must've happened between the transport. It was a two hour uh, move and I had it in the box with the movers. We never got it. it you know, needless to say that I lost all those journals. Uh, However, yeah. luckily, so I lost like uh, eight or nine years of journals, but luckily like with it by 2017, 2018, I started doing everything where I took uh, I would put it into a Microsoft Word file. So I have all of those <clears throat> in terms of my training, but anything previous to that, I really, I only have a few that I have at my parents' house. And besides that, like, I can't really, you know, I like looking back at these things because it's just a reminder of everything I've been through and all the progress that I made and all the things that I've learned. I have notes, right. like I take copious notes in terms of like how I felt that day, the the session RP, you know, my perceived rating, uh, my rating of perceived exertion, like the foods that I ate that day, did something digest well? Like there's so much data. And I understand that a lot of people at this point, they probably don't value that as much as we did because we really did learn through trial and error, but it yep. is something that I have like, it's almost like you have an emotional attachment to it. You know what I mean? Totally, totally. Yeah, no, it's definitely. And, and again, I'm not saying these things are like, it's not going to change my results, right? I don't need mm -hmm. to have like the data from back then. Same thing with my workout logs. I have workout logs back from when I started. So 2005 or so, I still have all of them. Um, it, but it's just, it's just interesting to see. It's nice to have, you know, there's probably like a sentimental aspect to it. So, uh, so yeah, that definitely upsetting. Um, but you were, you, you know, in talking about like your passion for this, you had mentioned uh, in one of our DMs that to my surprise, a lot of the people in the industry when you were in the corporate world actually weren't that into fitness, right? It was just kind of like a corporate job for them like anything else. 
Yeah, so it's very interesting. I think what people, and that's why I kind of hit on the fact that a lot of times when I would say that I was, I worked in the supplement industry or the sports nutrition industry, they thought of it almost like I was this dude at GNC selling supplements and just, it was like my side right. hobby. Right. Um, like I, that, I noticed that that was even like within the context of like people that I would introduce myself to. And the thing that, that we have to differentiate is I was a national sales director and I was, you know, head of uh, product development, research and development within different companies. So it was a very corporate position. I mean, these were corporate entities. I worked, I went to a work office dressed up every single day. Like it wasn't like you were wearing gym clothes. Like I do now to go to work. It right. wasn't like I was wearing gym clothes and just slinging supplements like out of the back of my car. And so within that, I would go to conferences. I'd present at places like the Olympia, the Arnold classic, but I would be in boardroom meetings with executives from different companies. So bodybuilding.com or big purchasing houses like subs.com and different online retailers, as well as big shops that have like multiple locations throughout the country. And I also worked closely with both GNC and with vitamin shop. So I was the key accounts or key brand manager for that within the context of a lot of the businesses that I worked for. And so with, like, if you really think about it, like, and I understand that this may not sound like it, it almost sounds like counterintuitive, but a lot of times these are people from different places. So for instance, one of the, it was either GNC or Marshalls or GNC or vitamin shop. One of the VPs actually came from Marshalls. So it had nothing to do with the supplement industry. So I would interact with this individual, but it was because they had skills to run a business and help with excelling it. So a lot of times I had coworkers that literally didn't work out. They didn't take any of the supplements that we, that, that we sold, you know, mm -hmm. it just wasn't a part of their lifestyle. So it was really hard because I was in this office where a lot of times, you know, I can often relate to my clients because I have a lot of clients that are busy working professionals, whether they work in the corporate sector, you know, they're in finance, they're in the medical field. You know, I work with a lot of, you know, people, you know, that have MD, that are MDs, like, you know, surgeons and things of that sort, physicians, but they'll tell me how it's so hard. Like we talk about food environment a lot, like what you surround yourself with is going to have a huge impact on influencing, you know, your food decisions, your food selection, as well as the calorie intake that comes along with that. So if you have a bunch of hyperplatable foods around you, you're going to be more likely if you, you end up eating those to passively over consume. And we see that in all areas of literature from like metabolic word studies with Kevin Hall, or if we even look at like the average American diet, it's 58% ultra processed foods. Whereas when we actually look at the full percentage of processed foods in the American diet, it's up to 70%. So people are eating 70% processed foods and 30% whole foods, which is diametrically opposed to what we should be doing to advance our, uh, our nutrition, our health and our body composition. So I'd be in an environment, like I can completely relate to people when I work with them and they come from an office structure because we would have donuts, you know, in the office every single day, we would have cake every Friday. Like these weren't people that were fitness focused. So I really, it was very hard to connect with them, not just because we weren't similar in terms of our passion for fitness, but also their ability. It was just a job to them. It was just a, like, it wasn't like a part of their life and coaching to me now and has always been is it's part of my identity. This is something I identify with this business. I put everything into this. And that's why we spoke out off air. I wake up at 3am every morning because I have a large percentage of my clientele that's overseas, that's their international, Australia, New Zealand, UK. So in order to be able to communicate with them in a timely manner, I get up at 3am so I can get through their check-ins. So it's right now about 845. I've already gotten through all my international client check-ins. So I've communicated with them. I've spoken with them. I've gotten you know back and forth. They've given them updates. And I do that so that we have this timely communication, responsiveness and things of that sort. However, you know, a lot of times people don't realize that when you have like a regular job, like for instance, Steve, you're a doctor, so it's a little bit different. So dentistry, you own a practice. And within right. that, that's a part of your identity. That's something you, you um, really are prideful of. However, if we look at most people within the general population, say you work at the post office, not that there's anything wrong with that job or you work at Walmart, whatever it is, it's not part of your identity. It's not something you speak about often. It's not something you think about when you, you clock out and you go home. That's the same thing in the supplement industry. And a lot of people mm -hmm. don't get, like, don't realize that. They think that every single person is passionate about this and really into fitness. And you're going to be around the, all these like-minded individuals. And it just wasn't that. And I remember, you know, I'm not going to name the company, but I had a situation where I did, you know, I competed 15 times over the years. Mm -hmm. And within one of my contest preps, I decided to do a show earlier than I had intended. Now I had taken off the time initially for, I was doing a national show. I was doing the team universe and a few weeks prior, I decided to do a warm-up show. I was already qualified, but I really wanted to test a peak because I was very into testing different manipulations of uh, refeeding and carbohydrate loading and things of that sort. So I wanted to test it. So I jumped in the show last minute. Now it didn't take away from my workday. I was at, at work in the office at, uh, until Friday at like six or 7 PM. All I did the yeah. next day was I got a tan in the morning. You know what I mean? And I went to the show. Obviously, I was in peak week that whole time, but no one could really tell because I was fully dressed. You know, I didn't have a spray tan or anything of that sort. And I always conducted myself in a way where I was always on point, regardless of the fact that I was dieted down or, you know, a lot of people, they think that when you diet, 
it impacts your cognition. We actually see in research that that isn't the case. It's more of a mental construct that you think that you're, because you're dieting, you should be seeing a downregulation or a decrease in your focus and your acuity. And yeah, maybe if you have some food focus, you're going to be a little bit thrown off from a mental perspective. But if you have the right mindset and you can realize, let me lock in, let me use the work that I have to do and the assignments and the tasks and the meetings as a distraction from food, that was something that was really advantageous for me. So I remember I did this one contest prep. I jumped into this show last minute and I got a call on the Sunday. So the, the show was on Saturday and I got a call from the VP of my company and he was like scolding me for having done the show and A, not letting them know. And then B, the fact that I went to work, you know, I didn't take off before. And I said, you know, to the individual, I said, could you tell that I was, I was going to do a show? And he said, no, that's why I'm shocked. And that's why I'm calling you. And I said, so how is that an issue? It's just because they couldn't relate. So there's this big differentiation. So, you know, it's not that I love this of an issue. Don't get me wrong, but I love coaching more. And that's why I went in that direction. Yeah. Do you find that? So, I mean, I think people listening to you can tell that you're, you know, the way you're wired, like you said, very type A. And I think a lot of people have a hard time relating to that. You know, like that, that's obviously not common. It's not common that people are going to be getting up at 3 a.m. They're going to be getting all this work done. Then they're going to be, you know, training themselves and then all these uh, consults and whatnot. So given that you probably work with a range of clientele from beginners to people who are actually like professionals and competing regularly, do you have to kind of, I don't want to say dumb it down, but just, I would say tone it down for the average person who maybe sees you and is like, okay, there's no way that like, I want to look like this guy, but I'm not going to just start, like, I have barely worked out. I don't really follow what I eat. I'm not going to start getting up at 3am and tracking every little thing that goes in my mouth. Do you find that you have to make it a little bit more relatable for people coming to you? I don't find that it, it has to do with relatability, but I will, you know, do a tangent off of that. I always speak to my clients that I live a life where I don't expect them to live anything like it, but I, I, my intention is to talk to talk, but also walk the walk. So I'm a leading example and a representative, uh, representative of the lifestyle that I lead and that the lifestyle that I pr uh, promote and preach. However, just because I do something in a certain fashion doesn't mean that I expect, I want, or I would encourage anyone else to do. To be honest with you, we just spoke about this off air, but I go to sleep at like 7, 7.30 or 8 o'clock at the latest at night. Mm -hmm. So I can get up at this time and get sufficient sleep quality and sleep quantity. And for a lot of people, you were just mentioning this, that would cut off your social life because everything does happen at night. However, I'm willing right now in this, this growth phase of my life, especially in terms of business being my top priority, I'm willing to make those sacrifices. I train very, very early in the morning. Most times, you know, most times, you know, Monday through Friday, I'm in the gym between six and 8 AM because that's the only time that, you know, I do about a three hour work block. I communicate with uh, clients. And then I generally don't have check-ins from domestic or us clients coming in until around nine a.m. So it gives me a little bit of a time where I can, you know, devote some time to my own physical development, to my own physique progress. And then I get a little time to get a post-workout meal shower. And then I'm on consultation calls or I'm answering emails. And so I think really when it comes down to coaching, I really think about coaching. I always say this coaching to me goes far beyond the X's and O's of calories and macros within nutrition and sets and reps in the gym. And we have to look at it from a lifestyle perspective. And what I really do with clients is I'm always looking for the bottlenecks, holding them back from things, but I'm really trying to meet them where they're at. So a lot of times people will hear me speak about what I do myself and they're like, oh, this guy's all about optimality. But really when it comes down to coaching individuals, and I've coached over a thousand people at this point, when it comes down to coaching individuals, I'm trying to bridge the gap and really find a place in between, in the middle ground, essentially, between what's optimal for their goals and what's practical for their lifestyle and the constraints within their lifestyle, whether that be responsibilities, kids, a business, any stresses that they have going on in life. So I raise the standard of excellence for many of them, but I raise it to a bar that they can meet it. And then we just slowly work you know, up from there. And so my expectations of my IFBB pros are much higher than my lifestyle clients because they have two different goals, two different lifestyles and two different sets of priorities. And so I really think when it comes down to coaching, that individualized approach that's customized and catered to the individual is extremely important because that is how we truly get results with that individual rather than saying, you know, I train everyone in this fashion. I use this volume uh, selection. I use this, you know, relative intensity, uh, intensity progression or this RRR drop off for every single client because that's my strategy or that's my method. No, you know, when it comes down to it, principles are few, but methods are many. And we have to realize that there's principles that will like energy balance and from nutrition and, you know, protein, high protein intakes and things of that sort that will apply to most people that you work with. However, there's things that need to be individualized. And that's where you select different methods, different strategies and different approaches based on who you're working with. No, I, I think that's a good, good response. And I, I think that when people come to me for consultations or just comprehensive training, I've heard similar things where they say, okay, like I, I'm not going to be somebody who's going to track or, and like for me, uh, having again, tracked for almost like 20 years, 
it's just finding different ways to work with different people. I think that the average person who sees somebody who is a hyperachiever kind of thinks that it's there's almost this insurmountable block to get over. And I really try to emphasize the habits with people, you know, like there's, I mean, there's somebody I'm working with now who was over 350 pounds, you know, pretty much never worked out, never did anything. And within, you know, what's it been four or five weeks now, like the progress has been really good. But a lot of that hasn't been anything that this person didn't know. It's just like, hey, can you just do this one thing? Okay, we get that down. Can you just, let's say, weigh yourself daily for a while, right? So we can get that. Can you track your calories or at least have an idea for a little bit, but you don't have to do this long term, like things that make it more approachable. Um, And I think the longer I've coached people, the more I've found that it really has to do with uh, getting people to make one step at a time that allows them to get that momentum and the psychology of it. Because again, in 2023, most people know kind of what to do. A lot of people do at least, but the psychology behind it, I found is really huge. It's not, it's not that we're in an age that we lack, or it's not that individuals lack information. They lack application. They lack the ability and know the know-how to apply it and to execute upon it. So really I'm trying to meet clients where they're at and my, my expectations or my, you know, what standards I set for them are really based on the client itself. So yes, with my FBB pros or my competitors, I'm setting that they're calorie tracking, they're macro tracking, they're looking at very consistent meal times, uh, consistent meal schedule in terms of if they eat four meals per day, just make it around the same time every single day, get between three to five, you know, large bolus servings of protein per day to maximize muscle protein synthesis. Let's get some carbohydrate timing around your workouts to help with, you know, both performance and then glycogen restoration, as well as, you know, just all the benefits of uh, carbohydrate manipulation in terms of your insulin sensitivity, uh, post-workout is high, heightened as compared to any other point of the day. I'm working on sleep optimization, all these other things. But for instance, I just had a client come to me and she was um, she's categorized as obese or has obesity. And she used uh, Ozempic, which is a semaglutide. So the weight loss drug, she had lost uh, approximately 60 pounds and then she regained that and more. So she had used it, you know, um, I want to say it was about a year and a half ago. Wow. And she used it for somewhere in the range of like eight to nine months. So she's been off the drug in a very equivalent time from the amount of time that she took it. So, you know, time on time off, she's been off for the exact same time that she was on, but she lost 60 pounds. And I believe she gained, when she came to me initially two months ago, she gained, had gained around 75 pounds. And now actually, if you look in the research literature on Ozempic, on semaglutide and, um, some of those forms of the GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs, a lot of times we see rapid weight loss. So in one of the, the clinical studies they saw in an 18-month trial, they lost 15 around 15.3% of their weight uh, they lost during that period. However, when they looked at the regain statistics within a year, now mind you, they were on the drug for 18 months, so a much longer time period than a year. Within a year, they had regained between 60 and 70% of that. So we can kind of extrapolate that out and realize that within that year, they had only... Uh, within the year of being on the drug, they had only lost about 70% of the weight that the total weight that they they actually lost in the end. So we see very similar weight gain uh, statistics as compared to even lifestyle and diet interventions where, you know, six out of seven people who go on a diet will lose a substantial amount of weight. But within three years, we see about a 95% recidivism rate, meaning they regain what they lost during that initial diet. And so I had this woman come to me and we're literally working on, it's not calorie tracking. It's not macro tracking. We're looking for daily habit wins. And I have her doing it on pretty much a checklist. So it's hit uh, three adequate protein servings, the size of your, your fist, essentially. Uh, make sure try to do lean proteins. I have a fruit and veggie serving for her. So I want three to four uh, servings of fruit and veg per day at a minimum. Now she could backfill that. So I have it where she has like what I, what I would refer to as like a sample meal plan or a sample day and a day of eating for her, but she doesn't have to follow that. It's really just based down to the habits. I want her hitting a step count, going for post-meal walks because she does have a, a high degree of insulin resistance. She would be categorized if she hadn't been on the drug previous to that, she was categorized as type two diabetic. The weight loss initially had brought her down under that range. So now she's actually out of remission and back to type two diabetes. But this is something with weight loss that she has been able to put in remission. So she, right now she's type two diabetic, but she suffers from insulin resistance regardless. And so post-meal walks, we've been, been shown to help with insulin sensitivity there's a study that shows, you know, when they do a lifestyle intervention, they lose 7% of your body weight and do 150 minutes of aerobic activity. They have a double, um, the, uh, they double the amount of people that didn't go into diabetes or type two diabetes, then metformin, which is, you know, glucophage, which is probably the most prescribed type two diabetic drug on the market. So we're really just going for daily wins. We're looking for habits. We're looking for her to drink a sufficient amount of water because she was someone that only drank caffeinated beverages or sugar sweetened beverages. It's just like, let's go from, you know, your full sugar Coke to diet Coke. 
Let's go from, you know, the fact that you don't drink water at all. I want you to do a water preload with eight to 16 ounces of water before every meal, because it's going to help with the gastric stretching, which helps with, you know, initiating uh, satiety. And we see in actually randomized control trials that you could decrease your energy intake at a meal, at a subsequent meal by taking 16 ounces of water, uh, you know, 15 to 30 minutes before that meal. And it's about 100 to 150 calorie reduction that we see. So these are little things that they're just habit stacks. You're going to eat three times a day. Just go for a walk after it. Or, you know, if it comes down to you taking certain supplements, like put them next to you, your, your toothbrush, because you're going to brush your teeth every single morning. So just take them in the morning. So these are super simple steps and it's completely different than what I would use with a competitive athlete, but also she's in a completely different place in her life. Her priorities are different. And the things that she's looking for, she's not looking to maximize body composition. She's trying to get out of a, out of an obese category that's compromising her health. And she wants to be here for a better quality of life for herself and then her kids. Well, I'm glad you you brought up some of those habits because again, I depending on who is listening in the audience, there is a huge difference, I think, in interest of certain things we're talking about here. Like, you know, when you say, Oh, can you, you drink more water, right? Or can you switch from Coke mm-hmm. to Diet Coke? Sometimes that, that that to a lot of listeners right now, that's probably so basic, right? It's just like, oh, of course, I'm not just going to be guzzling Coke, for example, right? Or I need a little more sleep. But to most people out there, right, to the average American person just trying to lose weight, I, I think even for me, it's easy to forget how important some of these things are and how much of a change they can make. Because, you know, again, having tracked calories for so long, it's just like, well, just reduce the calories. But it's like, yeah, but how do you do that? Right. And a lot of these habits are a huge part. Uh, I want to go back a little bit to the GLP-1 agonist, because you mentioned that she had, you know, that's a very hot topic right now. Right. Um, And one of the criticisms that I don't necessarily agree with, but I want to see more research on is that, you know, some people have put out, well, they cause a lot of muscle loss. To which I would argue, yes, but they reduced appetite, which caused huge calorie deficits in people who were not working out. And if you took anybody and put them on a crash diet, for example, and had them cut their calories in half without working out, they would lose a lot of lean body mass. So how do you feel about GLP-1 agonists for somebody who, let's say, is overweight, not obese, wants to make dieting easier, and is working out? Do you shy away from that at this point? Are you open to the idea? Yeah. So I will say that I'm open-minded, but not so open that my brain would fall out. And so that's, that's a really good way to encompass how I feel about GLP-1 agonists. I see a lot of people that are using them for what's called cosmetic weight loss, meaning that they don't actually have a pathology that would lead them to actually needing this drug. Let's think about what it's really intended for. A GLP-1 receptor agonist is to help with the secretion of GLP-1, which is an appetite suppressing hormone. However, it's also being done because it's an incretin, which means it increases insulin production. And so within that, that helps to lower you know, your glucose excursions, your blood glucose levels. And then it also helps with rectifying diabetes as well as insulin resistance. So that's actually what the drug was intended for. I know a lot of people are focusing just on the weight loss aspect of them, which they have an incredible weight loss aspect of them, but it's really what they were intended for was diabetics. And so really when it comes down to it, if someone has some underlying pathologies, like say for instance, they're categorized as obese and they have type two diabetes. I think that if they're a can- that that makes them a candidate essentially for GLP-1 receptor agonists. But I also know, and this is like a really, uh, I guess, deep rabbit hole to go into, but I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of people within the contest prep bodybuilding scenario are looking at GLP-1 agonists to suppress appetite during contest prep. And I don't think that's sure. a good application. So yeah. these guys are already lean. They're capable of implementing the habits from a behavioral, from a nutrition, from a training, from an energy expenditure in terms of physical activity, cardio, and things of that sort. They have every capability in the world. Also, they're hugely motivated and driven. And I know this because I've worked with plenty of them. Yet they want to use a drug to make it easier. And I don't think I don't think that's a great application of this. I think that could be a slippery slide, like, because we have to realize that they're messing with polypharmacy. And so they're going with, you know, a multitude of androgens. They're using, you know, uh, fat burning agents, like clenbuterol, beta-2 adrenergic receptor agonists and things of that sort. And then they're adding in this weight loss drug. And what's really common, and if we actually look, uh, I believe Eric uh, Helms did a review on this with, um, I'm forgetting the researcher's name, but he's big into the binge uh, eating area of the literature. And they did one where they essentially showed like the prevalence of binge eating post-show from, you know, in contest prep competitors. And that it's Mm -hmm. one of the most common situations that we find ourselves in. And I'll tell you, I've done 15 preps before and I had one show that I binge ate after. And it was the first prep. No coach had told me how to, you know, there was no reverse dieting, recovery dieting, none of that. This is 2013, 2014. And the coach gave me no plan, didn't answer me the day after the show. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I was ravaged with hunger. Like, unless you've been to five or percent body fat or lower, or even if you've been just, you know, 
very lean, 8%, 7%. Dave, I know you've been lean yourself. You know that there's this overwhelming hunger and it's actually termed to or referred to as hyperphagia, which is like this unquenchable desire to eat past, you know, your homeostatic mechanisms. So we have two types of hunger. We have homeostatic hunger, which is regulated by energy status, like your energy intake, as well as your body fat levels. That's your true physiological hunger, which you're driven to eat things or driven to eat food because you need energy, but it's not specific. Then we have hedonic hunger, or non-homeostatic hunger, which is driven by the environment, driven by emotions, stress, you know, lack of sleep, things of that sort. And really we see it's more hedonistic when you're post-show and then it's combined with the homeostatic hunger because now you have a lack of energy stores. So, you know, contest prep competitors are really driven to overeat after them. That's why we see so many individuals that they end up ballooning up like a week after their show. They almost look like they undid all 16 weeks of that contest prep. And so my issue with this is you got the, during the, the prep itself, you're going to feel ravaged with hunger, especially around four weeks out. I'll say that from my personal experience and having worked with many, you know, hundreds of clients at this point that have done competitions. But if you suppress that that entire time, because what many people report on GLP-1 receptor agonists is it's so uh, incredibly powerful in terms of appetite suppression. And it works on the brain. It works on the gut. It works on all these different you know facets. You're not going to be experiencing that. So you don't even know it's coming, but say you get off the drug because you aren't a diabetic and you're paying out of pocket. And if you actually look at like the out-of-pocket costs for something like semaglutide, it's like a thousand dollars a month. Most people aren't going to be able to afford that for an elongated period of time. So now if you go from complete absolute suppression, you don't even know it's coming. And it's almost like it hits you like a ton of bricks. You got off, you're extremely lean and that helped you get lean. But now you're in this post-show period where all bets are off. You don't have a goal in sight. And now you're more, you're, first of all, you're already predisposed to overeat in that state to begin with. But now you don't have the drug intervention there. And so either you become reliant on that drug and you continue using it for an elongated period of time when you don't need it, or you get off the drug and then you're, it's almost like a slingshot effect. The more you pull back on something, the, the further uh, forward it launches you. Yeah, I, I think there are obviously a lot of implications. I do think that potentially, like appetite suppression in general, I, I think is going to be one of the biggest factors for people to lose weight in that people will talk about like their metabolisms varying so much and, and, other, and like obviously need to can vary a lot, right? So non-exercise um, activity thermogenesis, but I do think hunger is one of the biggest things that varies between individuals. And I think for people who obviously for contest prep, but any sort of dieting, the, the appetite suppression is going to be a big factor. I do worry right now with too many people using, as you said, for cosmetic weight loss. And uh, I guess where that could, you know, especially if it's unregulated and, and, you know, where people could go with that. Um, I think when it comes to people who are using drugs for whether it's getting lean or for a specific contest, I, I kind of, I've always categorized it as two different, well, yeah, I've always kind of put it as two different categories. So you have the people who take drugs that just make it easier. And then you have people who take drugs that allow them to do something that just physically wouldn't be possible otherwise. So for example, right, GLP-1 agonist, thyroid medication, clenbuterol, things like that. You could make an argument that it would allow you to get leaner than you otherwise could have. But for the most part, it's just making the calorie deficit easier. It's, you know, maybe you don't have to do as much cardio. You don't have to suffer as much, et cetera. But pretty much anybody could lose fat. Whereas when it comes to anabolics, that is allowing somebody to get to something that is just not achievable otherwise, right? Like you literally could never naturally get as much muscle without the anabolics as you could with the anabolics. And so that doesn't mean necessarily one is right or wrong or whatever, but I just a lot of times I, I see some of those, I guess you'd call fat loss drugs, almost as a an easy way out, whereas I think of some of these other things like, again, the anabolics, where it's like, all right, maybe you have a goal. And, and I personally believe almost everybody should be natural, but maybe you have a goal that requires anabolics if you really want to be an IFBB pro or whatever it is. And you just physically couldn't do that without anabolics in, in many cases. Does that make sense? That kind of categorization? It does. But you know what? You elaborating on that is very interesting because I see both sides. I see your side, but I also see this. With the fact of like something like, let's just categorize, let's just isolate GLP-1 receptor agonists. They have such a substantial decrease on your appetite because they're not, you know, a GLP-1 is an endogenous hormone. It's produced from the gut, generally when we ingest carbohydrates, especially. And so it's a signal from the gut to the brain and signals to the brainstem of the hypothalamus, essentially that you're, you're satiated. But this is like, you know, these are long acting drugs. A lot of the injectables are a week long, or they even have an oral medication that's once per day. And so within that, it's putting you at levels where your appetite is so suppressed with many people 
complain or one of the remarks they make is they're nauseous and they have exactly no appetite. So just to go back on what you remarked about the lean body mass loss, we actually see in clinical trials that about 40% of the weight loss that they lose is from lean body mass. So that could be from both the rate of weight loss because they're losing so much quicker than you would in a natural sense, but also the fact that they're decreasing protein intake as well. And so we don't have that delineated in the research if they're eating low protein. We just know they're on really low calorie diets, but it's making the deficit easier. So your argument about, or your point about it makes you get leaner than you would. Absolutely. But also you're doing less work within that process. So as you mentioned, you're probably not dieting as hard. You're also not dealing with as much hunger. You're probably not having to do as much cardio steps, all those things, which are all a part of say the contest prep or really, really trying to get lean. If you're trying to get like photo shoot lean or stage ready lean, these are all processes that take work. And we're all on an equal playing field for the most part in terms of having to put exert ourselves in a certain amount. Doesn't mean that it's not easier for one person to another based on their lean body mass, based on their metabolic rate, based on all these different factors, their need, their total daily energy expenditure. However, when we look at androgens, you still have to put in the work. So I know a lot of people within like the national community will point to like the Bayesian studies. Like people gain lean body mass just from sitting on a couch. Yes, during this truncated period of time, they, they gain lean body mass. A lot of it was water. A lot of it was fluid. They did gain, you know, actually some substantial tissue from not training. However, when it comes down to contest prep bodybuilders, these aren't guys that were not muscular and then took drugs or, you know, I'm going to categorize like a lot of people that are trying to get to that next stage. If we're going to a pro, they already had great genetics or they already had a great foundation built and they're only utilizing androgens to get to a super physiological level. And so they're attaining a physique. You're hundred percent right that they would never have attained naturally. However, they still have to go into the gym, put in the hard hours, really, ex you know, uh, push themselves from a training perspective, from all the aspects, from nutrition. It doesn't undo any of those, those entities. They probably still have the same time investment or even arguably even more because now their nitrogen balance is enhanced from androgens. They're also uh, probably pushing themselves harder because they have a better recovery capacity. So maybe their volume is increasing more or they're utilizing higher intensity, which is why we see a lot of these dichotomous camps where we have a lot of people that will scream about like the hit training and a lot of them are enhanced. We look at men's guys like that. They push themselves super hard, train to failure every single set. They also had an enhanced recovery capacity. But at the same time, we also have guys that are advocates of like high volume training, like your Jay Cutler. And he had amazing physique. And yes, he was enhanced. However, he put in a ton more work than many natural people ever will. He's in the gym twice per day. Yes, it was his career. But if we look at a comparison between him and natural bodybuilders, I'm sure he would have been a great natural bodybuilder. If you ever look at like Jay Cutler's pictures or actually uh, Chris Aceto, who coached him since he was a teenager, has posted yeah. this. Within the first six months, he gained like 50 pounds naturally. Like just he was a farm boy. He's stupid strong. And so... They had to put, you know, a lot of people that, and it's not everyone that utilizes this, but if you're going to the pro level, you're using androgens, but you're still pushing yourself to your maximum capacity. It's just helping you. It raises that threshold. It raises the bar. However, when we look at weight loss drugs, especially like this category of GLP-1 receptor agonists, it's making it easier for you. So you're not putting in as, in as much work. So I'd argue that, you know, it's not that one's right or the other, they're drugs all in all. I'm not here to judge anyone. Um, you know, I just, I do warn against just because I've seen this in practice so many times, I haven't worked with any competitor that has used a GLP-1 receptor agonist. I've heard stories from those who have, and have had, a, you know, just what I was recounting you, they've had an, an inability to stop eating after. And it's almost been worse. These are people that have competed before they've gotten into state shape and they've dealt with the post-show or post-diet period. However, it was almost exacerbated more from their personal anecdotal, you know, uh, accounts of them. And then also it does make the process a lot easier. And I think if you speak to anyone that's truly passionate about competing, bodybuilding, or even just getting lean, like Dave, you've pushed yourself super hard. We've had conversations about this. You've went to, I, I want to say one year, you told me you went down to like 1200 calories or a thousand calories for two weeks. You yep. actually gained water weight. Like we've spoken about your, your water weight fluctuations, which could be from stress induced cortisol and all these different, you know, edema and things of that sort, but you still had to push yourself and whether you were enhanced or not, you would still push yourself to be able to get to that level. And I think when it comes down to a drug and this is not a passive judgment, it's just making the process easier. And, you know, in my opinion, if you already have the capability, like for instance, we're both motivated. We love fitness. This isn't something like, I don't, you know, you actually look in research, like people often talk about willpower, but those that are most successful in weight loss, as well as in training, they use their willpower the least. They don't rely on motivation. They don't rely on willpower. A lot of times it's just habitual. It's a part of their routine. And they really look at this as an investment into their present and their future. And so within that, I think we really got to realize that if you're someone that's competing and you're trying to really get to the next level, um, you know, by all means, do what you want. However, you also have the capabilities that a lot of the people that are utilizing these drugs don't. They don't have the habits. They don't have the environment. They don't have the behaviors down pat yet. They also have the, don't have the yet for willpower and motivation to get started. So I really think we should, you know, 
I'm not here to say who can and cannot take the drug, but I think if we were to suggest who should, it should be those in a clinical population that need the drug. Because we also see, and you can see this in any type of research, we're actually having um, like a, a shortage of a lot of these drugs, which is why they're making more of them. But at the same time, the reason we're having a shortage of these drugs is because we have like celebrities that don't need them to lose weight. They just don't want to go through the process. And so they're making them popular. We have a lot of people going after cosmetic weight loss, and then it's causing a shortage for people that really need this. And what's interesting yep. is if you actually look at most of the populations that need this, like we look at statistics on obesity, obesity has increased threefold since the 1970s. So it was at fit, under 15%, like in the 1970s and 1980s, it's at 43% currently in America today. And so within that, a lot of people within an obese or an overweight category are at a lower socioeconomic status. So they're not people that could pay for cosmetic weight loss. They're not someone that could pay a thousand or more dollars a month for this. But those that can, that are in a better position and in a better health status are paying for it, getting the drug and taking some of the, you know, putting a, a shortage on the supply. And then those who really need it aren't getting it. And I think that's wrong just from, you know, uh, an ethics perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, that latter point about people needing it more uh, is definitely pertinent. I think when it comes to, so, and I think we were kind of saying the same thing regarding like the anabolics. I think we're, we're saying similar things, which is that <laughs> I definitely wasn't implying that people who take anabolics are not working hard. It's more just that they are getting to a level that again, just is not physiologically possible naturally. Right. 100%. Now you could argue to get to the same point. Like obviously if let's say just arbitrarily six foot, 200 pounds, 10% body fat to do that with anabolics would be easier than to do that naturally. But the reality is they're not hitting the same point, right? The people with anabolics are hitting far, far yes. greater levels. And so you know, could you make an argument that somebody could just take mega doses of anabolics and growth hormone and all these other things and it, attain a very muscular physique and not really work that hard? I'm sure. But in reality, that almost is never happening. You know, I guess every once in a while you'll see it's like these Instagram accounts of like foreign countries where people are just doing like these wild things, right? Like simple experiments and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've heard on like the forums and stuff. Some there, I remember one guy was telling me that he was coming out of a surgery and he started his cycle like three weeks before he was actually ready to uh, get back to training. And he put on significant lean body mass, literally just like not working out. So I, like I've heard these stories, but but in practice, almost everybody who is going to, you know, go through the undertaking of taking these potentially harmful agents is probably also going to be working hard as well. Right. For the most part. Right. Um, but but yeah, like with these GLP-1 agonists, it's a lot of people who I could like people I, I wouldn't name, but I could imagine who just like, they, they're not really people who exercise, they just want something to make it easier. And I think that that has problematic implications long term. And I'm not somebody who says you should be working hard just for the sake of working hard, right? Like, I, I think there are benefits to pushing yourself in a lot of different areas. But I'm not somebody who, who would say, well, you know, if you can have this attained with half the work, you shouldn't do it. Like, I do think one of the advances of let's say medicine and technology and things that we are able to achieve things without as much effort. However, there, there's a lot of nuance to that. I mean, we could have a whole podcast on that and like, you know, work ethic and whatnot, but I, I do think to take too many shortcuts where there's not a backup plan, like you said, where you take this shortcut and you don't know the, all the safety profiles, you don't have a plan for when you don't have that shortcut available. That's when it becomes problematic. Cause it's not like, it's just like, like a, you know, this is like a, a silly example, but you could say, well, if there's, this is also a controversial time to bring it up, but let's say like vaccines, right? Like most people get vaccinated when they're a kid, right? We're not saying that you should have a harder life, get all of these diseases throughout life and then have the same outcome. It's like, no, like it's, you know what, you want to take this injection or pill or, or whatever, you know, that's fine. But it's like a lot of these, it's like a one-time thing. And then for life, you're, you're okay. Right. That's very different than like, Hey, here's a drug to get you this thing. And then 12 weeks later, six months later, whatever it is, you just don't have that. And now you don't know how to get back there. And that same thing could be said with anabolics, where very few people are blasting gear throughout their life. And there's, I'm sure we've both seen countless examples of people in their late teens, early twenties, late twenties, whatever it is, blasting gear. They took this shortcut. And when they came off, they just like became depressed because like, well, I can never achieve that. I didn't put in the work to get to that point or even have a good natural base. And many of the people I know who use gear just completely got out of lifting because it's so depressing to, you know, just see themselves shrink and not have any real base. Dude, I love that you hit on that because it kind of expands on this topic and really brings something to light for me. So I'm going to analogize both of the two, whether it be androgens or it be 
GLP-1 agonists. And so within that, I think you really need to have your lifestyle in place. You have to make lifestyle changes. You have to make habits behave. You have to change your habits, modify your behaviors in a way that suits the lifestyle you want to live, as well as the body composition you want to achieve. So if you're not nailing the, the principles of nutrition, you don't have your protein dialed in, you don't have, you know, your, your energy balance, you know, situated, whether it be at maintenance in a deficit or in a surplus based on your goal. And you don't have like a consistent routine in terms of training, whether it be with, with, in terms of adequate volume, intensity, frequency. You shouldn't be going to use antigens because that is a shortcut, but it's not an all-inclusive solution. But the same thing with these GLP-1 receptor agonists. If you don't have the, the habits in terms of your nutrition, your relationship with food, your nutritional literacy, like you know uh, how to make better food uh, decisions and behaviors around foods, you know, there's a lot of individuals and actually... Unfortunately, I had a consultation with one of these individuals and I don't work with them, but I did a private consultation and there was someone that had used GLP-1 receptor agonists to essentially eat the hyperplatable junk foods that they said they were addicted to. Now, there's mm. a big in the literature, there's a big debate between scientific researchers, whether food addiction is real. But we see that certain foods have chemical properties that have addictive life like substances, essentially. So sugar, salt, fat, those combinations, highly platable, super processed. They're they're just naturally going to incline, put you to be more inclined to consume more food. And even in metabolic ward studies, like we look at Kevin Hall, he did a randomized control trial two weeks on both arms, put people through the same intervention. One of the diets was ultra processed and one was unprocessed. And when they did a comparison in the ultra processed condition, they ate over 500 calories more per day than they did in the unprocessed condition. So in the ultra processed condition, in the two weeks, they gained over two pounds. And in the unprocessed condition, they, they under ate by two, or they consumed 500 less calories and lost two pounds. However, they rated both of them to be just as satiating as one another. So we see just in direct data that to get the same amount of satiety and fullness from ultra processed foods, people were consuming, the same individuals were consuming more than 500 calories per day. And if you actually look at like uh, some of the supplementary materials, I went through this a long time ago. One individual ate 1600 calories more per day, per day wow. on that two weeks than he did in an unprocessed condition. So I'll go back to the semaglutide. I did this consultation with someone and they were, I, I wanted their diet consultation or I wanted their diet intake. So what I did was it was supposed to be a nutrition consultation. And they said they were dealing with some issues and they were scared of regaining weight and comes to find out that they were taking a GLP-1 receptor agonist, but their whole diet was pretty much ultra processed. It was prepackaged items. It was packaged meals. It was, you know, uh, cookie snacks, like really hyperplatable things, but the amounts were very low. So it wasn't that they were over consuming calories, but it was because of the suppression of appetite. So either way, like you have to realize that this, the drug works on decreasing appetite while taking the drug, but there's no residual effect on your appetite once you get off it. So that's going to have a rebound in terms of weight regain, as well as your appetite increases. And also, you know, when it comes down to that, so either way, I think you have to have this fundamental foundation built of your habits, your training, your nutrition, all the bare basics that we always speak about in terms of, you know, physical activity levels and all these things that are essential for body composition improvement, whether you decide to take androgens or you decide to take weight loss drugs, you need to have that in place and realize that none of this is a quick fix or an all-inclusive solution. It's not, it is a shortcut, but it could be a shortcut that makes it a longer term, um, you know, I guess, road of obstacles ahead for you because you didn't cement those habits and behaviors. And it's going to be really hard to do so, especially like with these weight loss drugs, or even with, in the case that you said with androgens, where you get off and you never had a passion for what you were doing. If you didn't have a passion for training, you took a bunch of androgens to attain this physique, and now you're depressed and you don't actually enjoy training, you're going to stop training. But if we look at someone like, I know you did an interview actually with both Vigor Steve and with Pete Rubish, correct? Mm, yep. And they both took androgens and they got off of them. And for the most part, what I had heard on the interview was they kept training because this was a part of their personality. This was a part of their life. They had all those habits dialed in and it was a part of who they were. Yes. Did they lose lean body mass during the process? Absolutely. They weren't going to be as strong or as big as they were on androgens. However, they still looked great, honestly, in my opinion. And second of all, they were people that already had those fundamental habits in place. And they both weren't people that I would assume, I don't know them personally, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I assume that they also already had done these things. They had already been training for an extended period of time. They had already had their nutrition and their training dialed in previous to ever, prior to ever going on those drugs as compared to a lot of people that they just use it as a shortcut right at the start of their journey. They get some easy gains, whether it be in muscle building or with these weight loss drugs with fat loss. And they never had anything that preceded that period of time. Yep. No, totally. It, it's a huge aspect. And um, I, I think that's why the it's hard to tell somebody to develop passion, right? You know, just like, oh, well, just be passionate about this endeavor. But I really try to get people to find something. And that's why it's not necessarily it doesn't have to be bodybuilding, but maybe some people are just more into CrossFit or more into powerlifting, whatever it is. But if you can get into these, this kind of positive momentum, right? And kind of keep that going, it becomes less of a, okay, I have to consciously force myself to do this every day. And it's something that you want to do. 
even if the results aren't there. I mean, again, the reality is even though you and I are only in our low 30s, we've been lifting for so long that I don't think we're going to be making leaps and bounds if, if, you know, in our physiques in the next few years, right? Maybe we tweak little things here and there, but we're going to look more or less the same. And if we were tied to these massive leaps in progress, we might get, um, you know, we, we might become less enthused with what we're doing. And I, I think it's it's something that we're not going to have to question, are we going to keep doing this over the years? Because we're, it's such a part of our life, you know? hundred percent. I will tell you this. I've gotten this question before because I've been training for so long and I'm sure you have as well. If you were to never look different than you did at your best physique. So let's go back to wherever you attained your best physique and that, you know, that's your ceiling or that's your max. Would it matter from going on forward if that was the physique you were able to attain or maintain or the best physique you ever have gotten? So say that, you know, five years from now, we're in our mid thirties, late thirties, and the best physique we ever had was at 27, but we're able to have that body again. And that's, that's our max. Would it upset you that you just worked five more years, five or six more years to attain the same physique that you had four or five years ago? So it's funny because just due to the aging process, that is a question that sounds like it comes from people who maybe are younger and expect great progress. The reality is most of the population would love to look like their best ever, right? I mean, most people are constantly talking about how they looked back in the day in college or whatever, and, and would kill to even have, you know, 80% of that. Uh, so I, I think most people would be very happy with that. I certainly would be very happy with that. I mean, I can tell you what my best physique was. And it was the summer of 2020. Uh, when I was basically home and, and like, you know, COVID was going on, I was dieting down. And if you told me I could just maintain how I looked summer of 2020, for the next 20 plus years, absolutely, that'd be great. And I would still be training and, and all of that. And we had done a podcast right around that time period, actually. Uh, I yeah. remember when you were in the post-diet phase and you were we were talking about refeed strategies. This is yes. years ago. I want to yeah. say this yeah. was in the fall of 2020. And I so I remember that time point. So here's my point to the audience. And, and obviously, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to agree with me. We're going to work our asses off regardless because this is a part of our lifestyle. But we also put in the hard yards early in life to make this a part of our lifestyle. So it wasn't easy any time within life. During the beginning, yes, you're a little bit more motivated because you're seeing easy gains. But during like the mid-20s or mid-30s, like we're going to see times where it's stagnant. We're really, honestly, and you could you could be honest about this as well. How often do you really see progressions in training? Because for me, I really have to push myself to the point where I'm overly exerting myself. I'm probably, you know, my form is not pristine to make progress. You know, a lot of times I'm, I'm kind of stalled out at many things that I do, especially I'm, I'm just finishing up my mini cut. So I'm in a deficit, I'm in a dieting down phase. So obviously I can't compare my training performance now, you know, at a reduced body weight in a hypocaloric state to where I've been in off season when I'm 20 pounds larger than I am now. However, I'm still motivated or I'm still passionate about pushing myself because this is an extension of who I am. Fitness has not only allowed me to build my body, but it's allowed me to build a business. It's allowed me to build my life. It has had positive aspects on everything else within my life, my relationships, my personality. You know, you, you speak about how you and I are type A. I'm sure that a lot of these lessons you learned as a kid in the gym, because I will say I did. So a lot of the things that I apply to other aspects of my life in terms of work ethic, discipline, and all these other, uh, the ideologies I have about just being really consistent. It's about consistency over intensity. I always tell my clients that. And that the reason for that is because we're going to be doing this hopefully for a long period of time. And it's really about showing up each and every day and doing your best, not looking for perfection. So aim for progress over perfection and progress might not look like visual progress in the mirror or on the scale or any of these things. It's really going to come down to progress within your own habits, your behaviors, how you execute and who you show up as every single day, both in the gym and out of the gym, at your workplace, in your profession, all these things. And when it comes down to it, these are things that I, I often speak to clients about. Let's have a ripple effect from, from training, from nutrition. Let these positive behaviors and habits that you've developed, you know, cascade out into everything else in life. They can have downstream effects on everything else. But also if you make poor decisions around your lifestyle, your behaviors, your training, your nutrition, they can have downstream domino cascade on everything else. So if you just put yourself in a direction where you're inching forward and you're still pushing yourself and you utilize what you learned in the gym and the principles that you utilize, like progressive overload, we can use progressive overload in every aspect of our life. And if the only thing you get out of the gym is a better body, you, you've done yourself a disservice. Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of great points there. I, I know you got to go in a minute here. Uh, something you said just reminded me. I, I you, you know, uh, Dom is Eddie Bro Science Life and all that. I do. He uh, actually came from my area. He used to do videos. Well, I was going to say. So I, I know you're a, a Jersey boy at heart, right? And uh, I grew up in Jersey. I was there most of my life. And so I just watched his most recent video. I'm actually going to play a clip here because it was a uh, surprisingly, I don't want to say profound, but maybe a profound uh, quote from him. I was actually thinking about making an Instagram post on this. So 
Um, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but I'm just going to play it real quick, and for the video, I'll probably just actually sub it in. Lifting is a metaphor for life. As men in life, we hope that at some point we can just rest, that if we achieve just a few things, life won't be so hard. But have you ever taken a rest day? It fucking sucks. It feels like you're dying, and that's because you are. Because as a man, the moment you stop pursuing your mission is the moment you start dying. Before you go try and cure your body dysmorphia, ask yourself, is that voice in your head telling you that you're smaller than you are? Or is it telling you that you can be bigger than you are? The answer yet again is yes. So obviously, you know, <laughs> I'm not looking to Dom for like, you know, great words of wisdom, but I thought it was actually funny because I, I have a few other guys I'm friends with who I would say is like our hyper achievers. And a lot of times we will think like, I just need a little bit of break or I'm kind of pushing myself to my, to my maximum, you know, capacity there. But I do feel like a lot of us, we, we almost need that goal striving in our life to give us purpose. And a lot of people who are overworked, they think if I had, you know, $10 million in the bank, I would just sit back on an island and, and just kind of just chill. And very rarely is that what people actually end up doing and being satisfied with life, right? There's actually, it's very common for people who live at the beach to, you know, for alcoholism to be prevalent because they don't know what else to do. And so it just made me think like, you know, with lifting, like you said, if, if all you get from it is a good body, that was kind of a waste. And there's so much else that you can really gain from it to, you know, pursue things in life to, to uh, use that as an analogy for other areas of life where you can work hard and get a lot from it. So um, again, just kind of like a, a joke with the, the clip there, but I do think it's something that uh, does have a greater meaning for a lot of people. 100%, Dave. I couldn't agree more. And the last thing that I'll, I'll hit on is the fact that we should look at process-oriented goals and look for approach-oriented goals, moving towards something rather than avoidance-oriented goals where we're moving away from something. You know, I want to become fitter. I want to be here for my kids in the future. I want to have a, a longer, higher quality life rather than I don't want to be fat or I don't want to overeat or the things that you don't want in life. I don't want to look like this, things of that sort. And a second point, just to round this out, is that Lifting has not only allowed me to build my body, my business, my mind, but it's also allowed me to connect with other people like yourself that are like-minded and that have that same uh, type A personality and really goal-oriented, driven and focused uh, type of individual. And that's given me fulfillment and also great relationships. So, you know, a lot of times people won't relate to us, just like you spoke about, is it hard for my clients to relate to me? And I really, I, I, I'm like a chameleon. I have to mold myself to the person that I'm speaking with in terms of my communication skills, my encouragement, the, the type of approach I take within their nutrition training, lifestyle programming. However, it's always a blessing when I'm able to connect with someone like yourself who understands because a lot of times life can be lonely. You know I mean? A lot of people don't speak about that, especially as men. We don't ever speak about the fact that a lot of us who are running our own business, you're a business owner, as am I, it can be a lonely uh, pursuit when many people within the general population or in life in general don't understand our drive, don't understand our passions, but it's also because they can't relate because they're doing something that they don't love. So if you just lead with passion, I'm not saying everyone can go out and have a career that, that really makes them happy and fulfilled on a daily basis where they want to wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning like I do. However, you can find something in your life that's a driving force, whether that be fitness, it be working out, it be a content creation, whatever it may be, something that's going to help you and really allow you to align yourself with getting up every single day in a way that you're working towards getting 1% better in some aspect of your life. Awesome, man. Also, way to round this out. Uh, where can people find more of your stuff? All right, guys, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram, which is at Brandon DeCruz underscore uh, for any coaching inquiries or consultations and stuff. You guys can reach me at BDeCruzFitness at gmail.com. And I actually have, I have an education-based uh, podcast that I do on a weekly basis with a, a good friend of mine and coach, and it's called the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness Podcast. So any of those, uh, you guys can feel free to reach out to me. And Dave, it's been a fucking pleasure, man. It's been way too long, and I'm really glad we got to catch up. Yep, same, man. And, uh, you know, we'll post this, we'll put all the links below. And everybody, go ahead and check out Brandon's stuff. All right, so Nick and I had actually done the podcast about a week ago, but I'm going to put it in this podcast here because we forgot to mention the charity donation. And this is actually one that I think uh, Nick has a personal connection with, right? So if you want to kind of go into that one. Sure, yeah. Um, as always, Dave, man, thank you so much for for structuring your podcast like this. I think sure. there's a lot of good that, that's been that's been done uh, over the, the course of your podcast. Um, so the foundation I chose is uh, the JDJ Foundation, and it is the family foundation of a good friend of mine, uh, James. And um, basically, James and his uh, his parents uh, are are three of the the greatest people I've ever met. Um, and uh, they're tragically um, both of his parents passed away from cancer, very in, in close proximity. 
Um, and James kind of took the reins of this, this charitable foundation. And basically what they do is they do a lot. Uh, they, they help financing playgrounds at schools, uh, help in homeless soup kitchens and um, participating in cancer research. They provide disabled children with special wheelchairs so they could pr uh, participate in athletics and stay active. Um, so it's really a great foundation. So I encourage everyone to go over to the website and just dive into more of their story because I'm not doing it justice, um, but really a great foundation. So um, if you could, it would be awesome to kind of help their cause. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And, and I appreciate you bringing that one up. I think it's awesome when people take the time to, you know, in this case, actually start an organization in, in the case of your your friend and his family, um, but to, you know, to have a connection with something where there's meaningful impact. So I'm um, happy to make the donation there and I will have a link below for anybody else who would like to check it out.